hey, Nick, hey, Jessa, what are you guys doing in my feed? Well, I mean, we're just hanging out. No, we're actually here because we want to give your listeners an opportunity to hear a little bit from us and hopefully vice versa. And what is us? What do you do? Well, we are a true true crime podcast, mouthful there. We are two actual practicing real-life criminal defense attorneys in Wisconsin, in the States, and we analyze uh, both policy-related issues connected with the criminal justice system and also famous cases and famous trials and break them down from a legal perspective. And you make all of that into a podcast and one case per podcast, is that right? Well, it depends on the complicated or lack of complicated issues in the case. What we try and do is pick cases where there's been a public reaction to the verdict. So, for example, in, you know, in the U.S., Casey Anthony or George Zimmerman. Mm-hmm. And we pull the actual mm-hmm. trial transcripts and talk about what the law was that could have led the jury to come to the conclusions that they did. Well, rather than telling people what it is, let's let people hear it. Here's a whole episode of your podcast coming up right now. Here it is. Getting off, getting off. everybody, this is Nick. This is Jessa. And this is the Getting Off Podcast. As always, we're back, and we're going in new directions. We have a clean slate. We <laughs> are starting fresh and anew. And we'll get to that in a little bit, what we're going to talk about today. But as you sometimes do... Today you have some housekeeping that you'd like I am to keeping house. Yes. Which is I want to remind everyone about an upcoming event, specifically the weekend of July twelfth. Uh, the weekend of July twelfth, thirteenth, and fourteenth, Nick and I will be in Chicago, Illinois at the True Crime Podcast Festival. We are doing two shows that weekend. We are doing a show that is private at a bar called the Arrogant Frog. In Chicago, tickets are on sale now on our website. Go to gettingoffpod.com slash live hyphen show. Okay? Gettingoffpod.com slash live hyphen show. Eventually, there'll be a pop-up on the main page. I don't know if that's done yet because I'm not the person that does the tech here. That all said, uh, tickets are limited. It's only going to seat about 80 people. It's a bar. You get free beer and wine if you buy it for the entire three hours that we'll be there from 7 to 10. You get to meet us. We're going to tell stories. It's a show co-hosted by Friend of the Pod, Kate Walinga, who hosts the podcast Ignorance Was Bliss. Then, at the True Crime Podcast Festival the next day, Saturday, July 13th, we are doing a crossover live show with Scott and Shiloh from L.A. Not So Confidential. Lots of psychology for us this weekend in July. Uh, But we're going to be talking about female sex offenders. You have to have tickets to the True Crime Podcast Festival to get into that one. But we would encourage you to attend one or both. We would love to see you. Uh, So get your tickets now rather than later if you're interested in going to that. That's my housekeeping. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about the question. 
the question. What do we mean by that? We mean the question that people who work as criminal defense attorneys of any sort get often, frequently. All the time? I wouldn't say all the time. Most of the time. Frequently. And sometimes even from other lawyers, but certainly very often from folks who are not lawyers. And that question is, how do you defend those people? Fill in the blank. Whatever those people means, exactly. How do you defend (laughs) someone who's charged with murder? How do you defend someone who's charged with sexual assault? How do you defend someone who's charged with doing, you know, terrible things? Yeah. And... So there's actually a lot out there about this topic. And I actually think there's lawyers have all sorts of different answers to it. I think there are legalistic responses. And I don't think those are bogus. I don't think they're lip service. I think they're real because I think many criminal defense attorneys do have idealistic, legal, constitutional you know, notions that motivate them. And I think that is true for you. And I think that is true for me. I also think many criminal defense attorneys have subjective personal motivations, you know, that are like really quite specific to them. Right. And so how did we get here today for this particular policy episode? Well, it's kind of spurred on by a couple of different things. I actually had an experience in my own life recently where I was out with other lawyers who were not criminal lawyers where this conversation came up even with very experienced counsel in different areas of law. And I'm used to getting that question from people that don't practice law, but when I hear it from lawyers, it's always sort of curious to me. And that's not a knock. You know, like, I actually really like the people I was out with. It's not like that. But also, because we're doing these crossover shows, we've had some new listeners, and while we've talked about this on Patreon and perhaps in really early episodes... We haven't really discussed this, the question, like the number one question that we always get on the main feed, and we think that we should. And it's both a simple and a complicated question, I think. And that's part of what's engaging about it to me, and I want to talk about some of those reasons. I agree with you. Some of them are legalistic. Some of them are moral. Some of them are personal. Some of them have to do with the greater good. There are ethical challenges at every step of those, all the way. Uh, but let here's the tea, as the kids say. <laughs> I don't know why I just said that. I wish I hadn't said that. I, um, <laughs> I, I actually have no idea what that means. Which just makes me love you more. And let's talk about that later. Me not knowing what it means. Yeah, we, we won't spend today talking about what the tea means. Yes. Okay. So, I guess let's start with this. You were a prosecutor. Yes. You presumably had at least some idealistic notions of what that meant. I did. You then came over to the evil dark side, and that's the joke that everybody makes when a prosecutor leaves for defense attorney land. Right. right? I just rolled my eyes because, for two reasons. Number one, that is what, like, literally everyone in the field would say to a person who is moving from being a prosecutor to being a defense attorney. And that's not on, I mean, how would you describe the frequency of that happening? Well, I mean, let's be clear at Nate's going away party from the DA's office. He was given a bobblehead of Darth Vader because people knew he was coming. It's still on his desk. It's next door to where we're recording this. I didn't remember that. And I did not, I know the bobblehead you're talking about and I 
didn't remember that's where that came from. And, and they gave it, you know, the prosecutor's office gave it to him because they knew that he was coming to work for me. Right. And that's like, I, I that annoys me that like, <laughs> it's just a cliche. It's silly. It, it's it's not creative. It's lazy. I, I don't like. I mean, it's funny gift. Ha ha for Nate to get a Darth Vader bobblehead. But like, just the general trope of ah, you're coming over to the dark side or going over to the dark side. Lazy, not funny, cliched, lame. But I will tell you, despite what I just said, I struggled with it. I was well past it by the time that, you know, we sort of made the transition. But as I was thinking my way through that transition, thinking when I still was a prosecutor about whether or not that was something I wanted to do or, or you know, other career options and that kind of stuff, I really had a – it was a part of my identity that I was a prosecutor. I did have very idealistic notions about it. I had – very particular notions about the right way to do it, the wrong way to do it, that kind of thing. So it was a big part of my identity, and it was hard for me to let go of that. Now, I did. I worked my way through that. Part of what helped me work my way through that was the idealistic side of being a defense attorney, which I think we should talk about. Um, And now that I've been doing it for a number of years, although we're probably approaching a point where I've we're not there yet, but in the not-too-distant future, I will have been a defense attorney for as long as I was a prosecutor. Right, but as of right now, that's not true. And right. I think to frame this conversation, I and I'm not going to ask you to go through every single aspect of the decision to become a prosecutor, but you did have reasons for wanting to do that, and those were noble reasons, and you were always a very fair and good prosecutor, in my anecdotal experience at least, and your reputation was consistent with that. I know that from living in the world, in our world. But I'd like you to talk about what those ideals were, because I think it's an interesting contrast to me, who always has been a defense attorney. Yeah, I. there were non-idealistic reasons, and I don't mean that they were, like, bad or cynical. It was just, like, I was interested in, in trying cases, so, yeah. I, you know, that's, but that's not an idealistic reason. Um, I liked the idea of helping people. I liked the idea, and this is, like, prosecutor thinking 101, I liked the idea of having a job where I was doing good, where I was one of the good guys where I was contributing to the greater good. And I prosecutors absolutely have the power and the authority and the ability to do those things. They also have the ability and the power and the authority to do the opposite, to do not that. And that is something there there's a lot of t- if you go like if you did research into case law about prosecutorial discretion and authority and all that kind of stuff out there in the jurisprudence and academia and in model rules and the ABA and ethics there's all sorts of talk about the ethics and the authority that prosecutors wield and how careful they have to be there's you're not really trained that way. So like it's out there in the world, but like you don't actually you wouldn't know it at least the way I came up as a prosecutor just by like doing the job. And I, I that that's a problem because the way it actually works at least in Wisconsin is you learn by doing and you learn by picking up just the way things work around you. And that's a problem if the way things work around you is broken. Is inconsistent with the law or ethics or yada, yada, yada. So um, that causes problems. But yeah, so I had lots of idealistic reasons. And the part of the job that I found most rewarding, 
number one, was probably working, interacting with the victims of crime. I found it personally rewarding to try to help people who were in need of help and to do so in a moral and responsible and ethical way. Um, Probably the second thing that I found most rewarding about it was to try to be fair and ethical to the people that I was prosecuting because I believed that was absolutely unequivocally part of my job responsibility, part of my job description, because prosecutors are not supposed to just try to hammer people. They're supposed to pursue justice. And so they're supposed to be ministers of justice, right. however one defines that. Right. Now that's and the issue, of course, is what's justice to you might not be what's justice to me. Correct. And so we could we we, we should could, do Yeah, we could yeah. do a separate episode about that. Let me right. ask you one question about this. Yeah. While you were in the prosecutor's office, what opinions did you have about the job of defense counsel? I don't think I had an opinion that was wildly different from the one I hold now. It just wasn't as well developed. I respected defense attorneys. I grew up in a house of lawyers, and so I well understood that lawyers are advocates. They represent people or entities, and their job is to advocate on behalf of their client. And there's nothing, and we're, I mean, we're moving in this direction now. There is nothing wrong. There is nothing inappropriate about defending someone who has been charged with a crime. And so I didn't have a problem with like, quote unquote, defense attorneys as a whole. There, I liked good attorneys and I disliked <laughs> bad attorneys. And that's still true today. Right. So in contrast, right, I also have a background in victims' rights because I worked in victims' rights before I went to law school, and that was a part of why I wanted to go to law school, was I worked in sort of a support capacity. I did legal advocacy as a quasi-social worker. I don't have an MSW. I'm not trying to hold it out as anything more than it was. However, I did take extensive training to do what I did at the domestic violence shelter. And you were there for a number of years. Yeah, I was there for two and a half three years, uh, <laughs> first as a volunteer and then as paid staff. And part of what I would do was go to court with people seeking restraining orders or women that lived at the shelter that their husbands or partners were on trial for having committed acts of domestic violence or child abuse. And I provided emotional support. I literally held hands. And part of what I learned rather quickly about myself, even in my youth, was I'm not really the hand-holding type. I wanted to be the person that was talking. I wanted to be the person that actually got to speak up and advocate. I didn't want to have to be a shoulder to cry on. I wanted to be a change maker. And that is in no way suggesting that we should denigrate the incredibly challenging work that social workers and counselors and support staff. Oh, right. No, no. That's not about denigrating roles. That's just about making coming to realizations about your own personality and what role sort of suits you. Exactly. And and I want to really stress that. I also have had some personal experiences in my life where I've seen the difference between the way that a perhaps unwoke, I guess, prosecutor will talk about a defendant versus who I have known that defendant to be. Because I've known people who have gone through the criminal justice system as a defendant And I've seen how they're portrayed versus what I know about them. And there is often a rather large disconnect. And that disconnect makes sense if you think about it, because prosecutors typically don't meet defendants. 
there, there's this wall of a, of a lawyer in between them a lot of the time. I mean, sometimes people are pro se, but usually there is. Prosecutors are not supposed to give legal advice to defendants. It's an adversarial system. You, as a prosecutor, learn about a person by reading police reports about a thing they are accused of doing that is a crime. Right. And that's all you learn about them. That's right. And that is true about what prosecutors learn about defendants, at least at the early, in, the, in the early stages of the case, like at the charging stage and as, as you're moving toward the early part of the, the process. And simultaneously, you, a prosecutor oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes is learning a great deal about the victim of the crime. That is a person they do have access yes. to or, or you know, can have access to. And I think it is natural for, I mean, a defense attorney does, you know, take on, uh, learn about their client and empathizes with them and sympathizes with them. And, you know, you form some kind of human connection with that person. Prosecutors sometimes do the same with victims. And that's all perfectly well and good. Um, it does lead to taking on a certain position, it is helpful for lawyers on both sides to have the capacity to empathize with the other side. I think that's actually an extraordinarily important, what do I want to call that, personality characteristic, personality trait. Right. And one of the things that is just fundamental to being a defense attorney is that you have to be able to look past the accusation. Like, you just have to be able to get around it. Either you plow through it, or you sidestep it, or you skip over it, or you limbo under it. But you have to get past what the person is accused of, because oftentimes that thing is very bad. And it's not just legally bad, it's not just a crime, but because defense attorneys, spoiler alert, are people, we recognize that morally some of the things that our clients are accused of doing and oftentimes have done to others are not things that we would advocate for. No, almost exclusively that's the case because if a person is charged with a crime, what does that mean? It means they have violated a law that we collectively as a community have passed that said we don't permit this type of behavior. We collectively consider this bad. That's why we're making it a crime. But one thing that is bothersome, that is hard, that is difficult about being a criminal defense attorney is people who then, you know, equate the attorney with the actions of the client. <sighs> and that's bothersome for all sorts of ways. One you just identified, no one, for example, thinks child sexual assault is okay. Like, literally, well, I sure hope literally no one thinks that's okay. Human... The human, vast majority of... Humanity collectively right. rejects that. Humanity collect, collectively well, rejects illegal, murder. So we've all decided that this is bad enough that we can punish people. In every it. place I'm aware of, right. right. So these are unequivocally bad things. No attorney's like, yeah, no, I'm defending this person because I'm actually totally fine with that. No, no attorney has ever said that. Well, what are we doing? We are, I mean, we can give constitutional answers, we can give legalistic answers, and I believe in those things. I do, and here's the short version of that, right? The only thing that's stopping the police from kicking down any of your doors are people like Nick and I 
who object to the police kicking down doors in a court of law with due process. Like, the reason that the Fourth Amendment is enforced and exists is because defense attorneys raise their hand and say, wait a minute, you didn't follow the rules. You know, like, that's how that works, is we protect citizenry from the tyranny of government because we stand up in between the tyranny of government and citizens. And we do that because the founding fathers of this country who are always lauded for their genius and for, you know, American exceptionalism and all that, which I don't disagree with, in their wisdom, they created these protections. And defense attorneys, it is literally their job to ensure that those constitutional protections that Thomas Jefferson and Hamilton and all of those geniuses um, made sure that we had, because they recognized how important they were, and they did that on the basis of the experiences that they had had coming off of uh, living under governmental regimes that did not acknowledge individual rights and protection from the government. And so that could be enough, right? Like, it, it, could, it could be, be, I believe in the Constitution, I believe in protecting the rights, I understand that what I have to do is bigger than any individual defendant. That's my legal reason, that's my constitutional reason, that could be enough. Well, and it, it, Right, but it's really actually, for me, like, the beginning. I agree. Right, like, that, that's the start. And it could be enough, I guess. Um, but it's been beginning because it's like, essentially what that is, the tip of the iceberg of, is we are there to ensure is the wrong word. Because there are oftentimes all sorts of things. That thwart. Yes, that thwart your best efforts. But we are there to try to ensure not only that our clients you know, have the benefit of their constitutional rights, but also to ensure that the process is just fundamentally fair, right? Because, look, most of the time when someone is charged with a crime, they wind up, or crimes, far more often than not, they wind up convicted of something, Something. right? So, you know, and I've been sitting here reading articles about, from different defense attorneys, about the fact that we typically represent people who are guilty of Something, But oftentimes, here's one thing that you and I both get very hyped up, and this can absolutely get me out of the bed every morning. Prosecutors overcharge things, and they take something wrongdoing, some criminal act or actions, but they call it something more than it actually is. So that's one example. We, we fight to... For fairness and calling something what it actually is. That's one example. Yep. Another example is that prosecutors don't evenly apply their charging discretion. And certain groups of people are more prone to being introduced to the criminal justice system than other groups of people. And that's a fundamental fairness issue to me. It sure is. It's one that I actually think is really hard to combat or address as an individual defense attorney because I think those are that's a result of just really high level historical systemic factors but that doesn't mean that we can't call attention to them and use them as part of our advocacy so you know those are some of the sort of like idealistic legal things which absolutely totally motivate me Um, I would also suggest that for me Knowing, and this might sound counterintuitive to people, but for me, I think competent defense counsel actually helps crime victims. And here's why. 
if you have a competent defense attorney who provides a zealous defense all the way through trial, and they know the rules of evidence, and they file the appropriate pretrial motions, and they defend to the best of their ability meeting the standards that we require constitutionally, then we as the public can have some faith in that conviction, at least comparatively more faith than if defense counsel was not competent. And it's less likely that the case is going to be overturned on appeal, which gives victims finality. It let it lets victims say, okay, I have that closure now. Whereas if that didn't exist, we would have, you know, and we still do have a really rigorous appeals process and there are good reasons for that. But I think being able to show the best argument and see 12 of your peers decide to convict, I think there's some validation in that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and then being able to trust that that result is meaningful, there's validation in that as well. Right. And you alluded to something before. Defense attorneys are keeping another aspect of their job. This is, again, literally part of the job, is to keep the whole rest of the system honest. And as you said, if we afford these rights to the people who have done the most egregious things among us, then we're all protected. And and that's true. And And one of the things that most motivates me since I've switched sides is... It's well, all right. I'll start off by saying it this way it is heartening and it, it, it's wonderful when we have cases with prosecutors who are great at their job, both from a sort of tactical, legal, trial level, but also from a sort of moral and ethical level. That's those are good days, yeah. But it is really frustrating and really challenging and disheartening when you encounter prosecutors that you that don't fit that description. And it saddens me, it has saddened me since I've become a defense attorney to discover the frequency with which I think that is true. And I really struggle with that because I believed that I took my job really, really seriously in those ways. And when I see folks not doing that, it is very upsetting to me. Well, and I don't know. I've probably told this story before on this show. Maybe I haven't. But one of the things that was so touching and so illuminating to me when you first switched sides was there was a moment that you came into my office and said, why is it that people no longer believe what I say? (laughs) You were like, I am the same person. I am making the same types of arguments that I've made for the past eight years or, you know, whatever. Why is it that now no one believes what I say when everybody believed what I said before? And my answer was because now you're a defense attorney. Yeah, and that's that's exactly true. And so there is a fight there to be found credible, to stake out that space for yourself in the courtroom with the people who are there. And sometimes we're more successful than others. Well, and like the deal here is I just don't run this place. Okay. In any number of ways, I don't get to make the decisions. I actually philosophically like operating from that perspective because it inspires me and it motivates me, but it also angers me and frustrates me. And those are two sides of the same coin. And there are a lot of more, you know, I've never been a person who believes that life is simple. 
I'm not a black and white person. I've never been a black and white person. I, you guys have heard me quote this too. To me, there are very few days where there's an absolute right and an absolute wrong, and those days always involve a high body count, to quote Aaron Sorkin. Uh, I enjoy the challenge of nuance. And I find it to be an idealistic and meaningful endeavor to seek for good in people versus to see the worst in them. I philosophically and morally celebrate my opportunity to do that every day, however challenging I might find it on a day-to-day basis. So that's probably a good segue into the more sort of subjective aspects of how do we do this from the sort of more like constitutional legalistic aspects. And, you know, one thing that you and I have spent a lot of time talking about over the years is we spend a lot of time on every case looking for the good in the person or looking for the truth in the case. Why did this, if, if something bad did indeed happen, why, why did it happen? What was the cause? That is part of our job. It's not the only part of our job. Another part of our job is breaking down the evidence, you know, seeing if, if, if the evidence is legit or if, if, you know, constitutional norms were violated, et cetera, et cetera. But for the purposes of this conversation, we're talking about trying to understand the person and trying to understand why something happened. And you and I could both talk about certain types of cases, or actually a lot of different types of cases, that do motivate us, that we can feel pretty passionate about our ability to represent folks who you know, we believe um, you know, are sort of saddled with this or that or the other that, that motivated the crime or contributed to the cause of the crime. And I think we should. I'd like to do that. Well, and I can tick a few of those off without a lot of commentary, and yeah. there's some that I think have more. Right. For example, I represent a lot of veterans. A lot of veterans come home from war, and they have dual diagnosis of PTSD and some substance abuse issues because they're not getting adequate treatment for their PTSD, and that results in explosive behavior or dangerous behavior or reckless behavior. And these are people that took an oath to protect my freedom, just like I took an oath to protect theirs. And to me, the least I can do after they've made that sacrifice and they've done such damage to their own psychological makeup is to stand up for their freedom after they took on all of that pain to stand up for mine. Absolutely. That, you know, that one's easy. People with mental health issues who I feel like aren't as responsible for some of the things that happen. Um, I politically, philosophically am against the war on drugs. So fighting to keep people out of prison for long periods of time for nonviolent drug offenses is something that comes very naturally and very easy to me because I don't have a lot of moral conflict about their crime. Affirmative defenses, self you know, like if I believe someone acted in self-defense, those are easy. There are a lot of things that are, you can grab onto, right? And I think you have those too, and I'll let you talk about those for a second. Well, that's my like two minute condensed version, but. Yeah, I mean, here's one that's easy for me to talk about. Cases where I believe my client, like the real explanation for what happened lies in, with a mental health explanation, those are cases that I feel very passionately about because I don't think that the criminal justice system is where people who are primarily afflicted or struggling with mental health issues belong. It's it's the wrong place. And I think punishing people for illnesses that could be treated is, I don't think that's, I don't feel good about that morally. And 
Another, I mean, you know, we talk on this show sometimes about, well, there's a Brian Stevenson quote, for example, that the system treats you better if you are well-to-do and guilty than it does if you are poor and innocent. And the reason I'm bringing that up now is because situations, mental health cases that, that I assess as being largely about mental health are cases where... If the defendant had been in a different circumstance where they would have had access to mental health or someone would have recognized that that's what they needed or that kind of stuff, this oftentimes tragedy, in my opinion, could have been avoided. And so I have very strong feelings about about situations like that. That is very different than a case where it's just sort of straight up criminality. And I'd actually like to talk about that because to me... Talking about how do I defend a type of case or a type of client who, you know, I have a soft spot for or is is, easy or is innocent or is innocent, which, by the way, that carries its own set of baggage. But that's not the question people are asking. They're asking, how do you defend guilty people? Not How do you defend innocent? And so like, here's like, I don't think I think it's a cop out for me to sit here and talk about how do I go about defending young defendants who have significant mental health issues. You have empathy for them. That's that's why I do. I mean, that's easy. That's a comment. The hard part is how do you defend folks who don't have something like that that makes them empathetic or understandable or whatever? How do you you defend the guy that commits multiple sexual assaults and you're almost positive he committed them? How do you defend the guy that's on theft number 37 because he's a career thief and has no regard for other people's boundaries or privacy? How do you defend someone who puts a bullet in someone's head in cold blood for money or their sneakers or for some hateful reason? Or commits a home invasion sexual assault and doesn't feel bad about it. How I mean, that's the real question, because there we're talking about people where there's nothing apparent about them to the general public that is good. And sometimes there's nothing about them to their lawyer. Well, that's what I was making a hand gesture. Sometimes, fortunately, it is less common, I think, than the public would expect. I agree with that. It is less common than people. I, I believe it is less common than people believe that. We have clients who, like, are "quote unquote" irredeemable, or are where it's hard to find something good and positive and empathetic about. I've had very few clients that I really felt like that. Right, very few. Like but, I can count them on both hands, and I've represented thousands of people. Right. So, but but that's what we're actually talking about. So, I think there's two points there. Number one, that's a lot less common than folks think, and I want people to hear that um, because I think that is a statement about humanity that. Almost all the people that we represent, ones who have done relatively minor things, ones who have done really, really significant things, they're all human beings. We, you and I, certainly, and most defense attorneys, when you get to know them, you do begin to see them as human beings and understand them as human beings. And for almost all of our clients, it is not difficult to sympathize and empathize with them. I want people to hear that. That's one side of it. The other side of that is, the true the, the people who that is not true for that is a small percentage of cases and that's a good thing yes but they do exist they do and there are clients that you and I have both had that we hated i mean i have had clients that if I saw them on the side of the road in a thunderstorm, changing a flat tire, I would throw my car in reverse to splash water on them. 
which actually <laughs> sort of goes in the direction of what something we're going to talk about in our next episode, but we'll leave that for the next episode. But right, so the hard part is what do you do when you have a client who is accused of doing terrible things? You're pretty sure they did the terrible things. Right. <laughs> May in fact be factually guilty and is unlikable. Let's put it that way. Um, that actually is when I think a defense attorney's constitutional duties are most called upon. I agree, but it's also where I find myself the most morally motivated, perhaps paradoxically. Talk more about that. Well, to me, principles are convenient when it's something that you agree with. And like, well, and this it, is also it's the- great that I think everybody deserves a defense when I'm defending a battered woman and I have this great affirmative defense and I feel like her actions were justified and rah-rah feminism, whatever. Right. That's convenient. Okay, that's easy. Uh, what I take pride in and very genuine pride is that I have to work harder to find good. And that I don't get to just say, you know what, you are not worth it. I will throw you away. I will throw you away. Everyone should throw you away. I take pride in the fact that I am not allowed to do that. And it has made me a better person that that is a requirement of my job. Right. And let's talk about how different types of advocacy how you go about tailoring advocacy for specific individual clients. Because in this context, if we have someone who is accused of doing horrific things, things that, here's a legal phrase, shock the conscience, yeah. right? And who may in fact be factually guilty of what they're charged with or some other terrible version of that, and who are unlikable or extremely difficult. We may work hard to find the good in them, and that is certainly one part of the job, but there are people for whom that becomes increasingly difficult, which is another way of saying there may be clients for whom that just isn't possible or doesn't happen. Well, or or that we can't see it. Well, that's a better way to do it, right? Because right, that, that can begin to feel like a personal failure or at least an acknowledgement of our own limitations. Right. And one thing that we do in our office is talk about cases. And sometimes one of us will be totally down on a client. The other one will say, well, wait a minute. I actually think this is mitigating. And maybe you can't see it because you're so frustrated with this person because they don't listen to you and they're nasty to you and they're, they did horrible shit and whatever. But the rest of us will say, well, wait though, this is, this actually matters. Right, and but that's also an illustration of the fact that, like, you know, we all are capable of whatever we're capable of. We all have our own perspective that begins somewhere and ends somewhere else, and they're not all identical. You know, so, like, I have the ability probably to empathize or sympathize about certain things that you don't, and that exactly, you know, vice versa. And so, you know, that's hard. It is hard sometimes, like, you know, I engage in introspection saying, am I failing here? Yeah, me too. Am I... Am I limited in some way because of who I am 
such that like I'm not able to find a way to connect with this person or what have you. But also, what is fundamentally missing from my heart by way of kindness that I can't find a way to understand this person a little bit better than I do right now? That that's actually what goes through my head when I'm struggling with that. Is come on, Jessa, you have more capacity for compassion and kindness than this. You can find it. Work harder. Right. There's that kind of thought process that goes on. But let's talk about, again, let's talk about the most challenging circumstances where, you know, whether that's not possible or it's not possible for me or for you, you know, given who, like, <laughs> where do do? we just really think somebody's a goddamn oxygen thief. Well, like, which, like, occasionally we have, right? Sure. And there are times where we think that guy's going to just go do it again. Whatever it is. Whatever the sentence is, after that sentence is completed, that guy will be right back in the criminal justice system. And you and I have both had clients where we've been pretty sure that was true. But you still stand, even in that situation, I think I there's a part of me that sort of divorces myself from the individual if we're struggling to get along with each other or it's a contentious relationship or whatever. You still stand up and say, I am going to insist on fairness here. Like, that if this person is going to be convicted, that it happens fairly and properly. And then when we get to the sentencing portion, that what is going to happen to them is reasonable and appropriate and is not unfair and unduly harsh or arbitrary. Well, and we don't live in minority report, right? So, like, whether somebody is going to do something again shouldn't dictate or our expectation that someone will do something again shouldn't dictate how we define justice or fairness for the thing they've actually done. Yes. Protection of the public is a sentencing concern, and that's going to affect what happens. You know, if somebody presents as dangerous, they're going to receive a harsher sentence. Of course. And we don't have, a, as you just said, we don't have a perfect ability to, we have a limited, very limited ability to predict what is going to happen in the future. We, You and I work with uh, a variety of actuarial tools and assessments that are applied by the appropriate professionals. They're the best we've got. That Because there are a lot of people that try really hard to quantify the likelihood of criminality in the future. And we do that all the time and imperfectly. And people also say, well, you know, what if the person that you get acquitted goes out and commits the same crime again? How do you live with that? And I have a really strong response to that. I'll let you say yours first. But, you know, I react really... Aggressively. Attorneys are not responsible for the behavior of their clients. They're just not. So if I have done my job properly um, and fairly and ethically, and someone goes out and commits another crime, you tell me what you... I I mean, I really push back against that. I do. What what are you going to respond? I mean, it's hard for me to really articulate anything that sounds vaguely intelligent because I find that so distasteful. Well, and some people might view this as an abdication of responsibility on my part and my role in getting somebody off, quote unquote. But my answer to that is what I said 20 minutes ago, which is I don't run this place. I didn't get to decide how this case was charged. I didn't decide what facts I was going to put in a criminal complaint. I didn't decide what witnesses I was going to call. I didn't decide how to prove this case. That is someone else's job. I have one singular narrow job, which is to defend this guy to the best of my ability. I don't get to make those decisions. And for me... I have never understood why it is that I have ever won a trial in my life, because if I were a prosecutor, I would not pursue cases that I would lose. 
Okay, that uh, and they have the ability to do exactly what you just said. And so, to me, the conviction rate should always be a hundred percent because, to me, an ethical prosecutor would not charge the case where the evidence is going to be suppressed because the police misconduct was outrageous. They should not charge the case where they know they have uncooperative witnesses who are going to set the world on fire and cause all sorts of problems. They shouldn't charge the case that they're not sure about that they're well. I don't know. Let's teach the guy a lesson or whatever. And so, to me. I'm working, I mean, I'm the underdog every time, right? The defense attorney has no power compared to the state. We have no, even the wealthiest client doesn't come close to having the resources of the United States government or the state government. You know, I can hire every expert in the world, but they're going to have more access to investigation than I am every time. And to me, if you're angry about people getting off, you're angry at the decisions that the people in power made. You're not angry at me. I didn't do it. The prosecutor did. And part of the way that I can ethically be okay with my job is to count on prosecutors to do theirs. And some of the times that I've had the most challenges ethically and morally have been when I felt that the prosecutor failed my county or my state or my country and that I showed up and did what my narrow slice of the system is, and they failed to show up and do the same. Correct. That's what makes me angry. I don't know why people think that because I stand up for someone's right to a fair trial, that somehow that converts to me being pro-homicide. Why would you think, like, that's such a simple, it's so simple. And this is complicated, difficult, challenging shit. And I don't think there's a lot of space for simplicity. Here. No, and it's supposed to be hard to take away someone's liberty. It's the Constitution is designed for it to be challenging, hard for the government to do that because our founding fathers set it up such that individuals would be protected from government overreach. And one of the things that most motivates me, and I'm not sure if I've said this clearly yet in this episode or not, in being a defense attorney is reacting to exactly what you just said prosecutors who I don't think are doing their job properly. They are overcharging things or mischarging things or you know, not taking the pro- proper ethical considerations into account. And when I see that, it is, that is government you know, abusing individuals. And that's not hard for me at all to get motivated about. I have a quote sort of in this area that I love from Edward Bennett Williams, who's a... Yeah, one of the most famous criminal defense attorneys that's ever existed. Uh, he was in Washington, D.C. He founded a firm that still bears his name, even though he is dead now, Williams & Connolly, which is one yeah. of the biggest deal law firms in Washington, D.C. So he said, in the law, there is a presumption of innocence. It is a legal concept, not a moral one. I defend my clients from legal guilt. Moral judgments I leave to the majestic vengeance of God. Sure. I like that. And, you know, to me, I think it's interesting that society's tendency is to put these transgressions on the shoulders of defense attorneys where they say that, you know, you were complicit in this. But there's almost never any similar statement towards prosecutors to say you were complicit in this because you failed to do your job properly. Oh, uh, good point. You, you know, why is it the the person that has to stand up 
in the face of unpopular opinion, in the face of significant challenges, why is it that I have to stand up when some guy calls and and calls my paralegal a bitch and hangs up on me and spits at the bailiff and behaves like a total fucking asshole and God knows that's happened. I have to be calm and do my duty, the oath I took. And yet when that person walks away, somehow society looks at me and says, that's on you, whatever they do next. That is not on me, and I reject that, and I cast that right off. Well, it reflects, number one, probably, you know, sort of a bill of goods that people are sold in sort of, uh, you know, popular media about how things work. And also it reflects an unfortunate misunderstanding of basic sort of constitutional rights. Yeah, and civics. Right. We should do better about that. So I think that both you and I, at the end of the day, do feel a higher duty to protect these rights, both legally and morally or philosophically. And that's part of what motivates us. And what we're going to talk about next time is not the duties that lawyers have to clients, but the duties we have to one another morally, philosophically, and legally. And we're going to introduce our next deep dive case and talk about how that is a reflection of some of the gray areas of duty. Indeed. In the meantime, I am Jessa. I'm Nick. And this was Getting Off.